Happiness is an inside job. At Happy Healthy You, Connie Bowman helps us find our way with inspiring conversations and healthy ideas for living a whole life in mind, body and spirit. Happy Healthy You. And now, here's Connie. Welcome to Happy Healthy You, the podcast. It's been a while. I'm Connie Bowman, your host, and I'm so glad to be back talking with you. We have an interesting guest today that will hopefully be helpful to us as we navigate some of the turbulent waters we've all been um, swimming in lately. Um, before I get to our guest, I'd just like to remind you that I'm still in relationship with our awesome sponsor, Blue Planet Eyewear. They are the best, and I'm wearing my Blue Planet readers right now. They um, make the most awesome readers and sunglasses, and they give back, and they're eco-friendly, and they care about the, the planet, and I just can't say enough good things about them. So if you'd like to support our sponsor and our podcast, go to blueplaneteyewear.com and use the code CONNIE20 as you shop, and you'll get some really cute readers in every magnification. I, that's one of my favorite things about them is I uh, have been increasing my magnification of my readers as the years move on and um yeah so i can always find the one i need so let's get into this podcast about happiness <laughs> interesting that that is our focus here um the focus of this podcast has always been since 2013 um the idea of hmm working toward happiness contentment joy by finding some kind of balance in mind, body, and spirit. And um, I think during these times of pandemic and um, social change and other things that we are going through right now, um, we're being challenged to maintain that balance. And we're doing the best that we can. But I think our guest today has some wisdom to share, has a lot of wisdom to share. Gelong Tupton is a Buddhist monk, a meditation teacher and author. He was educated at Oxford University and he became an actor in London and New York for a while. We have a lot in common here. At the age of 21, he suffered from severe burnout and a life-threatening heart problem. His dramatic wake-up call led him to join Sami Ling Tibetan Buddhist monastery in Scotland. Oh gosh, he can correct me when he comes on. Where he became a monk. His training over the past 26 years has included spending over six years in intensive meditation retreats, the longest of which lasted four years. He studied under some of the greatest Tibetan meditation masters and is regarded as highly influential, a thought leader, and he teaches meditation internationally in the fields of charity, education, healthcare, and business. Welcome. Now, you told me I could call you Tutin because the word Gelong actually means monk. I never knew that. <laughs> yeah. Gelong is, is like Mr. for monks. <laughs> cool. Monk. Very and cool. Gelong Tutin is my full name, but uh, really Tutin is, is how people call me. 
So yes, thank you. Thank you for that permission. So it's great to talk to you over in London. We have a great connection. So I'm excited about that. How's everything going for you over there? Let's just start there, taking all of uh, the external sensory, <laughs> sensory experiences into, as we do in meditation, into consideration. Well, uh, we've obviously, like everybody else, had a really heavy time here in the UK with the pandemic and with lockdown. Um, right now, it's beautiful sunshine, the weather's great, and uh, I've been walking in the park. Mm -hmm. um, so on the one hand, things are really dreadful. On the other hand, you can find beauty in small moments day to day, even in a crisis. So mm -hmm. it's a kind of mixed experience, really. Mm -hmm. I think everyone's really being very stressed, very anxious, very frightened. Um, I think people are becoming a little bit more used to the situation now. I don't know. Obviously, the States, things are much worse over there. I've been seeing in the news. Mm -hmm. um, the UK has been really bad. We don't know if it's going to get bad again. It's all uncertainty, isn't it? Mm, it sure is. And I think it's that uncertainty that we are so unaccustomed to. Um, dealing with, although as a meditation teacher, I'm sure you uh, work with that with your students. Um, and I'm really excited to talk about your book, Amongst Guide to Happiness, because it, it showed up, I got an advanced reader copy, showed up in my mailbox um, at just the right time. And I've actually referred to it many times as I've been teaching yoga. Um, to start, I would like to just talk about a little bit of a recap because I've had mindfulness teachers on, I've had meditation teachers on, we've talked about both of those things on, on the podcast, but I still think people are confused about um, the difference between mindfulness and meditation and how they intersect. So yeah it's it's it can be confusing at first like are, are these two different things or not um the way i explain it is that they're actually uh, connected um there are many ways of defining these things but the simplest way is to say meditation is the practice of mind training where, where you sit down and you take that time to do your meditation practice say like 10 minutes or 20 minutes or however long you're going to sit there and do the the actual session and mindfulness maybe you could say that refers to two things one is in the meditation session your mind wanders mm -hmm. your mind gets distracted and it's mindfulness that brings you back into the present moment you use the power of mindfulness to reconnect with the with the here and now and then the other thing i think mindfulness can refer to is how you bring meditation into everything you do you know we we use this phrase be mindful or be be aware be be present in your daily life so it's not just about sitting on the chair or the cushion and meditating it's mm -hmm. also about those tiny moments throughout the day where you can be mindful even when you're um at the store doing shopping or mm -hmm. at work or in the garden or walking or doing any activity you can do them in mind in a mindful way and it's kind of like what you just said, you know, even though we have all of this going on around us, we, it's a beautiful sunny day. And in this moment, all is well. So exactly. I think it's yeah. really important to, to learn how to um, use those moments of peace, even in a crisis, because they're always available. Mm -hmm. They're always available. The present moment is, is always here. Mm -hmm. And if you learn to relax into your body and into your mind and just be 
um, not judging the present moment, but just being there without trying to change it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can find peace uh, in, in even in a difficult situation. Yeah, this stuff is, it, it's difficult to talk about mindfulness. I think, I think it's something that is really helpful if we are able to experience it. And, and I want to get to some of the practices that you suggest in your book. But um, before we do, and, and also talk about how this can apply to us right now and help us um, build some resilience to get us through this long you know, marathon that we're, we're going through. Um, but before we do, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about your story because it's another similarity. I think um, back in my 20s, I was having some um, anxiety and panic attacks and I didn't know where to turn. And I went to the library and picked up a book on meditation. And I had done some meditation in my college theater classes, as we discussed before we got on. And so I knew about it and it was sort of in there you know, I had I had the uh, the muscle memory sort of. Um, so when I picked it up, it, it it was so helpful to me. And um, it seems like you have a little bit of a similar story. You want to talk about that? Some just to yeah, start. Yeah. When I was younger, so in my early twenties, I suffered from quite horrendous anxiety and panic attacks. And um, well, it actually started with with. Um, a build-up of anxiety, a build-up of stress, and then it exploded as a very dramatic burnout. Mm-hmm. Um, literally one day to the next, I woke up in the morning. I was living in, in uh, Brooklyn, uh, in New York, and I was um, I woke up in the morning thinking I was dying. Mm-hmm. I, I thought I was having a heart attack. And I went to the doctor and they said, yeah, there's something wrong with your heart. Uh, it's probably stress-induced. And then I was really sick for a while. Then I managed to get back to the UK where I could have more tests and more uh, see more doctors. And they said, yeah, you've had a huge burnout. You've been um, so stressed and living a very unhealthy lifestyle. I was kind of into parties and going out and drinking and smoking. Mm-hmm. And I just wasn't looking after myself. But also in my mind, I wasn't able to uh, deal with anxiety uh, it, it built up and became like an overload. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I had a major, major breakdown really, and I was sick for a few months, uh, kind of in bed all the time, just unable to move much. But I started reading books about meditation. Um, I first of all, I stayed with my mother; she looked after me, and she, she and my dad are both Buddhists, although they'd never kind of forced it on me they they are practicing buddhist so it was there in the background Mm -hmm. um and obviously she had all these books and i started reading them and it started to really click this whole idea of mental transformation and that you can train your mind you can change your mind you can transform your mind and i got fascinated by that idea and then at the same time as that an old school friend told me about a buddhist monastery in scotland where they just started this new um, uh, system where you can be a monk for one year, like a kind of training period. And, and that's, that's something which uh, hadn't been done before at, at that monastery and in most monasteries, in fact. So I went there with the aim to be a monk for a year. I thought, I'm going to do this just so I can really immerse myself in meditation training. But I never thought I'd stay longer. It was just going to be a year. And then, in fact, I thought I would go back to acting after that. I, I thought I'd go back to the States and carry on. 
But what happened to me during that year was I started to find greater levels of peace and tranquility. And I also got really fascinated by Buddhist philosophy and what it had to offer and the whole notion of training the mind and developing compassion and serving others, doing something good for the world. This kind of stuff started to really get under my skin. And that's why I stayed and became a, a lifelong monk. Beautiful, beautiful. So um, part, part of that uh, was silent. How much of that was actually silent for you? Well, when I first joined the monastery, it it's kind of quiet in that it's a beautiful place in the mm-hmm. uh, Scottish countryside and it's very cut off from the busyness of the world. So there is a level of silence there and that you're away from the city. But we were talking to each other, you know, mm-hmm. the other monks and me. But then uh, later on, I started to do intensive retreats and then you do practice silence. So in my second year of being a monk, I went into a long retreat on my own, a solitary retreat. And during that time, I, I could talk a little bit to some of the people who were around there, except for five months, I took a vow of silence. Mm. And during those five months, five you can't months. speak at all. And you're just meditating all day. It's really intense. Um, and then later on, I did other retreats, longer ones. And during those retreats, you also have long periods of silence. Mm. I've only done a 10-day Vipassana retreat, and that was that was enough. I felt like I was digging out all kinds of old wounds and deep things that I didn't even know were in there. So I, I can't even imagine five months of silence, but it must have been Yeah, so healing. those 10-day retreats are also quite intense. Mm-hmm. I, I know many people who've done the 10-day Vipassana retreat, and uh, you're silent during that time, aren't you? Mm-hmm. And getting up really early and meditating all day. So yeah, we, we in our tradition, in the, in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, we do longer retreats that The one I did in um, 2005 was four years long. Um, So that's really intense, but you kind of settle into it as well. After a while, that just becomes your lifestyle and you're just in in this enclosed space meditating all day. It's not relaxing though, is it? I mean, it's- (laughs) It's amazingly not. (laughs) Retreat is like, you know, going to somewhere nice and and relaxing and chilling out, but actually you're doing quite intense work on your mind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's, 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 it's great, but it's not what people think it is. People think it might be really uh, like a chill out or a relaxation right. thing. But I can see how you would be fascinated by going deeper into that, because I was too. And um, it's kind of like space, the final frontier. It's like going going deeper and deeper until we, I guess we we do it for the rest of our lives. Well, yeah, I think that we all have this fascination to, to, uh, to try and understand how we can heal our minds and how we can heal past trauma in ourselves and how we can uh, live our best potential. I mean, we we all have a sense of that, don't we? We have a sense that we're not always stuck the way we are. We can, and and that's why these days things like psychotherapy and counseling and meditation and all of these disciplines are all pointing to this basic human need for expansion and development and the inner journey mm-hmm. and um, obviously that's been the heart of all major religions as well the right. inner journey so that's something we human beings really want mm-hmm. and I think nowadays it's becoming more popular outside of religion isn't it so mm-hmm. mindfulness has become a thing that people don't have to um, belong to a religion to practice it 
but they really want to develop their minds. This in, is great. Yeah, it is. And I am actually from the Anglican tradition. I'm in the Episcopal Church in my second year of discernment, thinking about ordination to priesthood because I want to go deeper into, that's my path, that's what I grew up with, so it made the most sense. Um, and um, I feel that that's part of what my journey is going to be to bring this kind of um, teaching to... Wonderful, yeah. and I, I, I really feel that the discipline of meditation can enhance spiritual practice, whatever mm -hmm. one's path sure. is. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I was, <laughs> years ago, I was uh, giving one-to-one -one meditation classes to um, some lawyers in a law firm in London, <laughs> and um, they were talking about stress and work-life balance and all of those subjects, but one, one of the lawyers told me in our session that um, he's Jewish and he goes to the synagogue quite regularly, uh, once a week, I think, and they do quite long prayer ceremonies. And I said to him, when you're sitting there doing those prayers, what is your mind doing? And he said, oh, well, I'm thinking about law cases and I'm thinking about work. And I said, well, why don't you think about how meditation could help you pray with more discipline and more focus? It can enhance your faith. Uh, and he was really surprised to hear that. He had, hadn't made the connection that, you know, we, in different religions, one pray, prays or does chanting or all kinds of different services and how meditation training could help you do it with more presence mm. to have a real focus while you pray. I wonder what that would look like in a, in a, a traditional church service to incorporate some more, um, maybe just some more silence. I don't know. Do you have any yeah. suggestions for... I think that would be great. A few moments of silence before the service starts, maybe in the beginning, the middle and the end. But also it, it's more about helping people to do meditation as a daily thing. A little bit like exercise or going to the gym. You have to do it every day and that makes you stronger. So if people are doing that in their daily life and learning to practice mindfulness as they're doing their shopping or work or whatever they're doing, then it means when they go to church, they've already got their strong presence of mind through the training of mindfulness. And then whatever um, whatever they're doing in the church service will have more meaning because mm. they're more present. Wouldn't that be beautiful? I think it would yeah. bring more people back to the church, uh, you know, I think so. I, just a I theory. Think so. <laughs> yeah. I, I really, I, mm -hmm. I respect all religions. Of course, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm a Buddhist monk, but I'm very um, respectful of all paths and all faiths. And mm -hmm. I really want to... I encourage more and more people to meditate so that their own faith becomes more personal to them and stronger. And then, of course, outside of religion, this meditation training can be done by people in the workplace, people who are stressed. It really is for everybody in every situation. Yes, it's just healthy, just plain, plain out healthy. Okay, let's break it down a little bit. Um, let's talk a little bit about stress and how why we experience stress. I mean, aside from the <laughs> the major stressors we have going on right now, I mean, just base, basic stress, where does it come from? I think people are feeling that modern life is incredibly stressful, isn't it? And mm -hmm. there is a, a strange irony in that we in the, in the sort of, um, um, in modern Western, especially civilization, um, have given ourselves so many comforts and supports to make our life easier 
but actually our lives have become more complicated. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we created the digital age to make things simpler, but we've ended up with more work and we've ended up more distracted. So I think we're more stressed in modern life than ever before because things are moving so fast that there's so much distraction. Um, pressure, we're under pressure all the time. We seem to multitask endlessly and never feel like we get anything fully done because there's so much else going on at the same time. Do you ever catch yourself multitasking just to interject? <laughs> Do you? Yeah, yeah. yeah of course. Yeah. Like what would be because an example I'm, of that for, well, for you? Well, you know, I'm, I'm a monk and obviously I spent a long time living in the monastery. And when I was in those retreats, we didn't have any technology or any newspapers or phones mm-hmm. or anything, no contact with the outside world. So that's how you really imagine a monk lives. And I, I've lived in that way for a long time. But nowadays, I'm writing books, I'm giving talks, I'm running meditation centers, I work with charities. So my phone is always ringing, I have emails, and I do all these terrible things like write an email and be on the phone at the same time. Okay, good. (laughs) See myself doing all that stuff. Um, But I definitely find that because I meditate every day, I can handle the stress differently. Mm -hmm. I do get stressed. I'm human like everyone else. I do get stressed, but much less, it's much less toxic for me than it used to be before I learned meditation. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't compare myself to you, but I do catch myself multitasking and I I, I do feel like the, uh, the time has shortened between when I start and when I realize that I'm doing that and I can make the corrections needed, so. Um. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so anyway, stress, back to stress. So um, the pressure, the fast pace. Um, and then there's uh, what we want, what we have, and what we love you talk about. Can you go yeah, into that? Yeah, so we, we as a culture have put ourselves in this situation now where we endlessly need things. Um, you know, we, we have created a world around us that demands us to want more. If we want more, then the wheels keep turning, the wheels of commercialism, the wheels of consumerism. So we've created this structure around us, which is constantly telling us, obviously through advertising and all kinds of messaging, it's telling us you cannot be satisfied with what you have. You need to strive for more. And so this has made us more stressed because we always feel that there's something missing from our lives and we have to run after stuff. And of course we do, and then maybe we do get what we want, but then we find ourselves wanting something else. And so that wanting and grasping and craving just seems to be endless. And it's made us feel quite sort of insecure. Like we, we, we go around thinking we're not rich enough, not beautiful enough, not whatever enough, you know, we're always thinking we're not enough. And the culture around us is not encouraging us to feel grateful, to feel appreciative. It's encouraging us to feel um, dissatisfied. And I think that's incredibly stressful. And then the search for happiness becomes a very frustrating quest where we never feel like we have enough. Mm. I found this quote this morning that I read um, from Haf. Hafez, Hafiz, the Supi poet, and he says, ever since happiness heard your name, it has been running through the streets trying to find you. And I feel like we do that. We're always seeking and grasping and looking for that happiness, but it's really always there. (laughs) That's the thing. We look for it outside, but Mm -hmm. really it's always here inside. Mm -hmm. And I always like to think of it 
I, I like to kind of break it down and think, what is happiness? I mean, when, when we are happy, maybe we, we think of happiness as something that happens to us when we get what we want. Okay, when, when everything's right, we, we're in a beautiful situation, everything feels comfortable, and then we're happy. But if you really examine that feeling, isn't that a feeling in your mind? I mean, yes, maybe lots of stuff happened that meant you now feel that way, but you are feeling the feeling of happiness. So why not just cut out all the extra stuff and go straight to the feeling? Mm. Because it's there within you, available whenever you need it. So let's let's get a little deeper and discuss how meditation uh, can help us to remove all of those. What what is um, what is Rumi's quote? Um, Ours is not to look for God or something, but to remove all the distractions that keep us from union with God or something. That's a really bad quote, but um, how do we, how can meditation help us to just kind of peel away the layers and get us to our true well, selves? I think meditation helps us to become um, more aware, more present, and to discover the beauty of the present moment. But there's something deeper as well, which is that meditation helps us to have a better relationship with our own minds mm. with our thoughts and emotions because if we think about unhappiness let's think about the opposite okay when we're unhappy what's happening in that moment is that our mind is caught up in negative worrisome thinking or feeling our mind is kind of trapped in a in a dark state and we don't know how to get out of it so even though we are adult educated professional maybe people who are really in charge of our lives there's a whole internal landscape that we're not in charge of and that is how our thoughts and emotions control us and take us in directions we don't want to go so meditation is about changing that relationship you know when you meditate you're not trying to eliminate your thoughts and emotions i think that's a big mistake that Mm -hmm. people make but like they think they're supposed to sit down and clear their mind or empty their mind that's a disaster because if you try and sit down and empty your mind the more you try and push the thoughts away the louder they shout mm, for sure so it's not that <laughs> you know it's not about eradicating all the thoughts and emotions but it's about learning to be less driven by them less controlled by them so a very typical meditation exercise would be to focus on your own breathing you know, just breathing normally, not, not deep breathing or anything, just normal breathing. But when you're focusing on your breathing, you're not thinking at the same time. You're just in the moment with the breath. And then within a few seconds, the mind does start to drift. You start to think, oh, what should I have for dinner? Or did I feed the cat or whatever? You know, the mind starts to get, mm -hmm. get distracted. And then you just gently bring your attention back to your breath. And it's that constant returning to the breath that gets you to have a different relationship with your thoughts. You're learning. It's almost like you you are now the boss. You are deciding, okay, I'm going to send my mind into the moment. I'm not going to let it get lost in thoughts. And when it does, I'm going to bring it back. So I think this changes our relationship with stress and unhappiness because those things maybe will have less of a hold over us if we train in this way of letting go. So as we begin, if, if someone's listening and they are a beginner uh, meditator, what would be the um, best scenario, the posture, the room, the, you know, the external accoutrement for getting started? 
Yeah, I think it's about taking some time each day where you can uh, go to a quiet place in your home and or, or anywhere really and take 10 minutes or 15 minutes. I, I think starting small is good. Maybe start mm-hmm. with five minutes mm-hmm. and then after a while expand it to 10 or 15 minutes. Take time out where you switch off your phone and you, you don't have any distractions and you sit, you can sit on a chair. You know, traditionally you see this meditation posture where people sit cross-legged on the floor some people love that some people don't so actually if it's uncomfortable sit on a chair but sit up nice and straight Mm -hmm. you know you're not slouched in a big armchair you're sitting up straight and you you might even need some lower back support so you can put a cushion behind the base of your spine and that gives you some back support but basically you're sitting in quite a good posture and then you do the session and there are steps, you know, there are different steps and different techniques. What what I did in my book was I ended most of the chapters with exercises mm-hmm. where we use different focuses. So like, for example, there's one where you use the breathing. There's another way you use sound or you use a visual object. But mm-hmm. in all of those, you're doing the same thing, which is focusing on the moment. And when your mind wanders, you keep bringing it back to the support, the, the, the meditation um, focus. What is the purpose of beginning with the sense, the senses? What is the purpose behind that? Well, it's interesting because when you are uh, focusing on one of your senses, for example, let's think about the breathing. Mm-hmm. When you're using breathing for your meditation, that is basically the sense of touch, isn't mm-hmm. it? Because you're focusing on the feeling of the air flowing in and out of your nostrils or your mm-hmm. mouth mm-hmm. or the rising and falling of your diaphragm or whatever whichever part of your body you feel the breath happening so you are focusing on the sense of sensation or touch and it means you're fully present but also it means that you are um, giving yourself something to come back to when your mind wanders so your mind gets off goes off into thinking and then you can remember to return to the sense that you were focusing on the sense of breathing in terms of our brain Um, what we're doing here is working with a different brain region. The brain region that is associated with sensing one of your senses is different from the brain region associated with thinking. And those two can't coexist. The mind, like you can't drive a car in two gears at the same time. It's one or the other. So you can't be ruminating and sensing your breathing simultaneously. It's one or the other. So it's very good that you're using the sense as a counterbalance to get yourself away from the rumination. Mm -hmm. And then over time and with practice, what are the changes that actually happen in the brain? Well, this is really exciting because uh, nowadays we can show that in scanners. This is the this is possibly why meditation has become so popular because it's now been scientifically proven. So you can put somebody in you can somebody can meditate then you can put them through an mri scan or other types of brain imaging and you can show the positive changes in their uh, brain chemistry brain structure you can show that it reduces stress you can show that the amygdala which is the part of the brain related to fight or flight Mm -hmm. you can show that that is less overreactive you can show that there's um the the brain regions associated with happiness and being present are in better condition so you can see all of that in a scanner uh, but the main thing is you feel it in yourself mm-hmm. through mm-hmm. meditating. Um, it's not a quick fix. It's not like you're going to do like one or two sessions of meditation and then you just feel great. It's not like that. 
but it's a bit like exercise. You know, if you if you take up a new exercise program like I don't know yoga or running or swimming or whatever it is, you're not going to suddenly have a different body overnight. But through doing the the exercise every day, you start to get in better shape and you notice your muscles are different or you've lost weight or whatever it is you wanted to achieve. It happens slowly. It's the same with the mind. If you meditate every day, over time you just find you're less stressed. You feel more calm. You're able to put yourself into a happier, calmer state more easily. Mm. And that builds up over time. So at first it's like hard, not hard work, but it's work. You know, you have to sit there and do your meditation and you feel like, okay, I need to do this. But when you start to feel the benefits, you feel like you want to do it because it gives you such peace. Mm. And, and some days, yeah. Something you do regularly. Yeah. Some days I show up and I'm, there's no way I'm sitting still for any period of time. But if I give it, it's kind of like when I go for a run, if I'm, if I'm running in the beginning, it takes me a quarter of a mile, a half a mile to really get into my stride. If I sit long, if I force myself to sit, I usually get into the zone or get into the, what's happening with that? Why is that, why is that a thing? Well, you know what I find? I find that sometimes, you know, I'm, I might have a session where, because I do it every day. You know, I, I will meditate every day no matter what. Mm -hmm. So I don't give myself a hard time about quality. I don't think, oh, it has to be really good. I have to do it well. Right. I'll just do it. And there are some sessions where my mind feels really distracted. And during that session, there's a lot of thoughts and uh, there's stuff going on in my life maybe, so I find it harder to settle. But when I finish that session, I don't feel it was a bad session because mm -hmm. I still was doing some work on my mind. And even just to come back to the breath a couple of times during that session is a victory. Yeah. And it's something that uh, builds your strength. So it's okay, however the session is. I mean, one of the main things about meditation is never to judge the present moment, just to be present however it is. So if your mind feels really crazy or if it feels really still, it doesn't matter either way. The key point is awareness. Mm. You're being aware of the mind, whether it's like a, uh, a still lake or a really choppy ocean. The awareness is what counts. It doesn't matter how many thoughts. It's can you be aware? That's the key. Regardless of what you're, sure. aware, you're being aware of. Um, any tips for getting us in a really good routine? I mean, do, you must have some tips for people over the years. To... Yeah, well, I think it's important to start uh, small, to start mm -hmm. with sessions that are shorter than you think would be necessary. You know, people, mm -hmm. maybe they try a really long session and, and it's almost like crashing and burning because they, they've done such a long session that the next day they don't want to do it because the mind is like a rebel. You know, it's rebellious. It, it wants to do the opposite. You want the mind to stay still and it wants to do all kinds of other stuff. So you've got to almost trick yourself. So I suggest starting with five minutes a day and just feeling that's all I'm going to do. I'm going to do five minutes every morning. And then after a week, I'm going to extend it to seven minutes or maybe mm -hmm. 10 minutes. And then eventually it builds up and people are doing 20 minutes, 30 minutes. I mean, whatever, it could be an hour, but you're starting really small. Oh. And then you you have this notion that that is your baseline and you will never drop below that. Mm. And you're going to time the session. You're not, you're not just sitting there and seeing how it goes. You, you have a clock or even an alarm, but it has to be a really gentle alarm. Otherwise it's going to, that's a really good idea though. If you, if you set, if I know for me, I need to, if I run, I'm not going to go less than three miles. So if you have that goal of, 
and baseline, yeah. Yeah, baseline. I love that idea. And, and so that's good. And then the other thing that's good is, okay, they're, they're, I think there are two types of people. I think in, in regards to this uh, topic, there's one type of person who it really works for them if they set a time every day that they will do their meditation. Mm-hmm. Like you decide, okay, 7 a.m. or 8 a.m. or whatever, I'm going to do my meditation before the day starts. And that kind of person finds the the discipline of having a set time really helpful. There's another type of person who um, maybe that's counterproductive because maybe they miss their 8 a.m. session and then they think, oh, I've kind of blown it for today. I better try again tomorrow. But that's crazy. Why not do it at 9 a.m.? At least, you know, otherwise you end up with a procrastination habit where you never actually do it. So I'm the second type of person. I'm the kind of person where it works better for me not to set a set time, but just to make sure I do it at some point each day, particularly because my, my life is quite hectic. I mean, right now we're in lockdown, so it's much more simple. But it, out, before that, uh, I was traveling a lot and giving a lot of classes um, and doing a lot of uh, varied activities. So for me, every day was different and so it worked for me just to make sure I do the meditation at some point each day Mm. even if it's last thing at night I will always do it no matter what and then I feel that it's I'm not giving myself a hard time yeah yeah that's important I think I mean it's all in the name of happiness so we should we should not give ourselves a hard time but people do Uh, you know people say they find meditation Mm. torture Mm. like they say oh I tried it but it was so horrible I couldn't do it and if I really like ask them and talk to them well tell me why it was torture what what are you doing in the meditation it usually boils down to one thing which is that they sit there in a kind of war with their mind like a battle Mm -hmm. with their own mind they're trying to empty their mind they're trying to remove all the thoughts and that of course means meditation is going to be incredibly harsh and and it's it's going to be torture and then you never want to do it again but if you understand that meditation is not about killing your thoughts, mm-hmm. it's actually about just being present and the mind does go into thinking, but you bring your attention back, it's mm-hmm. easier. You're not creating mm-hmm. a battlefield for yourself. Right. And one more question with regard to the book. You have so many interesting and different practices. Do you recommend um, that we, if one doesn't necessarily work right away, should we move on to another one and, or should we stick with one for a while and give it a go? The way I've structured the book is I've kind of taken the reader through a journey where at the end of each chapter, not from the beginning, but kind of from halfway through those exercises at the end, I'm giving them an, uh, exercises which kind of build up, starting from the most simple, basic, and then moving forward. And I always recommend people kind of work through that sequence and they've tried all those practices, maybe for like a month on each one. And then they've really tasted all these different practices and then they can revisit the one that they felt was most helpful for them. Okay. But it's quite good to experience the variety first of all. But when you are experiencing that variety, I think it has to be in a structured way because you might start with a practice that's more advanced than you're ready for. So Mm -hmm. it's good to start in a like a step-by-step fashion. And that's why I've, I've laid out the practices in, in a sequential fashion. Not something I've invented. I mean, this is an old tradition. Buddhism is, you know, 2,500 years of tradition. Mm-hmm. And the, the practices I've laid out, I didn't make them up. They come from Buddhism. But I've explained them in a very non-Buddhist way. Mm-hmm. You know, in a very neutral way. It means anyone can appreciate them without feeling they're being 
dragged into a religion. But I've I really trust that tradition because it's been tried and tested for centuries that you you start with this practice, then you do that practice, mm-hmm. then that one, because they build up in mm-hmm. a in a progressive ma- yes. uh, fashion. Yes, I I found that in the Vipassana retreat that the we spent the first three days just trying to find our nose hairs <laughs> as we were breathing, <laughs> and it took me that long. It really did before we we moved into the body scan and sure, and. Sure. Um, the, of course, the real reward was meta at the end. The last day is the day we send out all the good juju that we've created to the world. And um, what the retreat leaders told me is that every, without fail, that last day, it's always a beautiful, bright, sunny day. And I thought that was a sweet story. I, I like that thought because um, I'd like to move into that now, how this uh, meditation practice and how um, really incorporating mindfulness into our lives on an everyday basis can help us with our relationships and with forgiveness and with generating compassion for the world and really change our whole body mind and spirit i mean yeah i think uh, loving kindness and compassion are really the heart of the meditation path even if you first if somebody first approaches meditation really from the point of view of stress management, just wanting to feel better and kind of reduce their stress, they, they through practicing, they, they, they start to develop a feeling for wanting to bring compassion into that. Compassion for oneself and compassion for others. The meditation practice really starts to be meaningful when it's linked with a notion of compassion development. Um, because that is our natural state, really. You know, we, we've become very divorced from our natural state. We've become these uh, real sort of fight or flight, uh, competing, competitive uh, individuals where we have put ourselves in these kind of unnatural situations where we live in cities where we um, live next door to each other but don't even know our neighbor's name. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not always like that, but that that's sort of a extreme example where we're very isolated so we're incredibly connected on the one hand we're all on the internet all the time and we're we, we're seeing the world through a different prism but um we are isolated as well we're very cut off from each other and this has made us very unwell in ourselves because we we are born to connect we are meant to connect we are meant to help each other um, we are meant to reach out in love and compassion and it, it's meant to be unconditional uh, when our love and compassion are tied up with um, conditions and need and greed it doesn't feel healthy we just suffer but when we're really in a state of uh, compassion for ourselves and compassion for others we feel healthy we feel that we are of benefit to the world around us and these are developmental developmental skills these are the skills we can develop Mm. and i think meditation does develop those skills because meditation helps us to reduce the sense of ego Mm. it doesn't mean Mm. that we become like without any identity it just means that toxic sense of ego of i need this and i need that and me 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 that can start to become less oppressive and we can start to connect more with others it's interesting that we were both actors and now we're moving more into the, the spiritual realm or you have been immersed in it for very long because that, that whole um, 
genre is full of ego and um, it can be. It can, it can be. be. I, I, it can I'm be. still very close friends with several actors, and um, I, through talking to them and through what I know about the craft, I know there are two sides to it. There is, mm-hmm. I mean, this is really simplifying it, but there's a certain type of performer who hasn't felt loved mm. and they haven't felt mm-hmm. um, recognized or um, supported. And now they're maybe using the performance is a way of getting love. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a human impulse, but it can be incredibly frustrating and draining because then the, the need for validation becomes incredibly intense. And I think there's another type of artist where it's, it is an art form. It's more that they want to disappear into the role and it, it's their craft. And I think that's really beautiful when an actor can progress to that level of like making a painting, but it doesn't matter if nobody sees it. Mm, exactly. You've created something. And that's the practice of moving the ego aside. I think so. Mm-hmm. And I know a few actors who, who seem to function in that way. Yeah. They're not really bothered about being... Mm-hmm famous or celebrities mm-hmm. or whatever I mean, some of them are but they don't really interested in that they and it really becomes just create right it becomes more about the joy of of performing the joy of creating, creating the joy of expressing human mm-hmm. nature in a way that other people can relate yes. and understand something i mean you read shakespeare and mm-hmm. that is incredibly powerful commentary on human nature oh for sure and somebody acting in shakespeare has to they have to disappear into the words they can mm-hmm. they there's no room for ego in that kind of work. I come from a musical theater background, and my daughter took it to Broadway, and she played the role of Evita in mm. Andrew Lloyd Webber, another oh. another good Brit. Um, and she said she had one moment when she was on stage in that iconic song, um, Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. And she was up there with her arms outstretched, and all of a sudden she became, she lost herself and became mm. Evita Peron. And um, she said it was the most um, enlivening experience, but also very weird. And But she felt so, um, she had really let go of her own ego and just become the character, but it was gone like that. <laughs> so <laughs> she's she describes it. So I, I have to have her on the podcast to talk about it. It's interesting. Anyway, this has been such a great conversation. I feel so calm just talking to you and inspired to revive my daily practice. Sometimes I'm not as, well, it's not my job. It's your job. So <laughs> so um, thank you. I, I want to really commend to everyone this book, A Monk's Guide to Happiness, Meditation in the 21st Century. And we can find it everywhere books are um, your favorite book place, but where can people find more information about you and if they want to work with you or, you know? Well, online, I mean, I have an online presence. So my name, Gelong Tupton, I have a website, gelongtupton.com. Okay. G-E-L-O-N-G-T-H-U-B-T-E-N.com. And on there, um, there are links to the work I do and the books and talks and all of that. Um, yeah, this has been a time, you know, people in lockdown, I've really tried to encourage them to try to use that time for meditation, uh, yeah. like a retreat. I mean, sure, there are some people who have the luxury of lockdown can be like a retreat. And there are some people who, who live in 
in in high density situations where it's intense and it's mm-hmm. stressful and uh, that's awful and very difficult so in a way it's a bit of a luxury to say use it for meditation but some sometimes people can and i think then lockdown has a different flavor to it like mm-hmm. a, a time for introspection and i think um use the time for meditation as much as you can and then lockdown doesn't become a prison it becomes an opportunity a gift really yeah. yeah yeah and then conversely those people on the front lines they should also be making time especially now right i think so i mean there's the people who work in the health service and essential workers key workers they they need as much support as possible with the stress levels with and this is one of the things about meditation i mean you think you need people might think you need loads of time and you need to sit still but actually you can meditate in small moments throughout the day mm-hmm. like i work with doctors and nurses and i talk to them about how you can meditate even in the hospital because as you're standing at the nurse's station you can take a moment to feel the ground under your feet and that grounds you if you do that 20 times a day you're more present for your patients mm. you're more in the moment it gives you strength it gives other people strength yes thank you for that that's a really good reminder and three deep breaths always snaps breathing. me right back i mean we're breathing yeah. all the time but right. do we ever notice it so mm. noticing the breathing means you're connecting with your body with your own internal sense of health your own rhythm of life it's within you all the time so you can breathe mindfully while standing in the line waiting uh, for lunch or waiting in a store or whatever you know it, it's it's all about presence mm. and the breath is sacred in so many traditions i don't know about buddhism is the breath considered sacred yes in in many ways so it it's it can be used as a support for meditation but also the it's connected very much to the internal energy system of the body mm-hmm. and so as you breathe in a more healthy way it can it is said that it kind of purifies your energetic body your, mm-hmm. your subtle body and yoga works on that uh, level too doesn't it so mm-hmm. it's all about um taking greater care of yourself through what's already available within you which is your own breathing and your own mind. Well, let's leave it right there and get on with the business of taking better care of ourselves. Thank you so much Tupton. I really enjoyed this conversation. We had such a nice clear signal all the way across the pond, so I'm grateful for that. Grateful for you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's really lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much. Stay well.